Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to the last uh, installment of the Middle East History Lecture Series for what academic year is this? 2013 2014. <laughs> uh, I'm Chris Rose with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies and uh, the Department of History. And uh, I'd like to recognize, first off, my cohort in crime, my co-partner in crime, uh, Shaz Amadi, who helped to coordinate this series uh, this year. And if you're interested in being part of the team that will run next year's Mideast History Lecture Series, please let us know. Uh, we're always looking for more people to get involved. Um, I'd also like to recognize the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the uh, Department of History, and the Institute for Historical Studies uh, for co-sponsoring this series. Um, we've had some great visitors this year, and I'm, I'm really excited about this last talk that we have lined up. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, a visitor from the Great White North. Uh, I, I wrote to warn her about the cold front that was coming through, and then I said, oh, wait, you're coming from Alberta. You're probably going to think what we consider cold is, is hysterically funny. And she was kind of laughing when she... Uh, when she came out of her hotel this morning. Uh, Jocelyn Hendrickson is uh, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies, History, and Classics at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, her research focuses on Islamic legal history in medieval and early modern North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. She's published articles in Islamic Law and Society, the Journal of Spanish Cultural Studies, and Mila Notes, the Journal of Middle Eastern Librarianship. Please help us welcome Jocelyn Hendrickson. Thank you. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you to Chris and Chez, especially for helping to organize this. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share my research with you. I'm looking forward to your comments and questions at the end. Um, and I am really excited to spend a couple days in the tropics. <laughs> um, and I know today might have seemed cold to you, but uh, on one of my, I run quite a bit, including in, in 20 below weather, and on one of my runs uh, a couple months ago, my eye actually froze shut. Um, I was squinting because it was, it's, it's pretty sunny in Edmonton despite the cold, but the, the air is really cold on your eyeballs, so you squint a little, and then the precipitation can actually freeze your eyes shut. Um, anyway, so <laughs> now that I've ruined any chance of getting you to come visit Alberta, <laughs> uh, I'll commence. I'm going to start with a short story from one of the legal texts that I work on. Uh, in 1491, a group of Muslims abandoned their homes and former lives somewhere in the southeastern Iberian Peninsula. Residents of the Nasrud Kingdom of Granada, they found themselves subjects of the Crown of Castile as the Christian Reconquista neared completion and the Christian Muslim frontier moved ever closer to the city of Granada, which would soon surrender to Fernand of Aragon and Isabel of Castile. Fearing what their future might hold as Muslims in a Christian land, and mindful of their Islamic legal obligation to emigrate uh, to Muslim territory rather than remain under non-Muslim rule, they took what they could carry, crossed the Mediterranean, and landed somewhere in the Maghrib, or North Africa, most likely in present-day Morocco. After successfully completing their emigration, or Hijra, these Andalusi Muslims from Al-Andalus, or Muslim Iberia, were dismayed that they could find no replacement for the security, prosperity, or community they had left behind. They changed their minds, regretted having emigrated, and wanted to go back. Thus far, the story of these emigrants is remarkable but not unique. 
waves of refugees fled or were expelled from Iberia during and after the Reconquista. And some of them did later return home. It is when these particular Andalusis began to mock the Maghrib and the very idea of Hijra and to conspicuously broadcast their hopes that the ruler of Castile would allow their return uh, to an infidel kingdom that the group caught the attention of the authorities and of history. Their insults against Islam and offenses against the public order constituted fitna, or the spread of corrupting ideas. Their case angered and perplexed a local jurist who sent a description of their offenses to Fez, the capital of the Watasid state, with a request for advice. Ahmed ibn Yahya al-Wancharisi, the leading jurist of Fez, wrote a lengthy fatwa, or legal ruling, confirming the obligation of these and other Muslims to emigrate to Muslim territory, prohibiting their voluntary residence under non-Muslim rule, and recommending their severe exemplary punishment. Awancharisi's treatise, known as Esna al-Matajir, and its shorter accompaniment, uh, the Marbeya Fatwa, are among the most widely discussed pre-modern fatwas, attracting scholarly and popular attention from those seeking to explore Muslim identity and Christian-Muslim relations at a significant moment in Islamic history, the permanent loss of Al-Andalus and the creation of a major Muslim diaspora. These Andalusi emigrants have captured the imaginations and sympathies of those sensitive to the plight of religious minorities in post-reconquest Spain and of those eager to spread uh, the blame for the near extinction of Islam in Iberia to the Muslim world and its jurists. Al-Wantrisi has also inspired the anger and scorn of those who accuse him of deliberate cruelty in the name of strict adherence to an outmoded system of law. Despite this interest, I've found that Al-Wantrisi's rulings uh, have been read in very limiting ways. In my current book project, Leaving Iberia, Islamic Law and Christian Conquest, I retell the story of Al-Wancharisi and his infamous rulings, placing them in historical context and providing the first full translations and analyses of the legal uh, reasoning in these texts. Uh, and here I'll pause uh, for a moment to place this project in the context of my wider research interests. In general, I'm interested in how jurists working within a religious legal system, in this case, Islamic law, maintain a balance between continuity with normative traditions and adaptation to changing historical circumstances. Thus far, I've investigated this question by focusing primarily on one genre of Islamic legal literature, fatwas, and one broad historical period the 12th to 15th century fall of Al-Andalus, otherwise known as the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, and the early expansion of Iberian kingdoms into North Africa in the 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, so I'll come back to that. Uh, as I'm sure most of you know, fatwas are non-binding legal opinions issued by qualified jurists or muftis in response to specific questions. Unlike standard legal manuals prescribing norms theoretically good for all times and places, fatwas offer us a window onto the application of law to actual concerns and problems that arose at particular historical moments. Uh, as for my broad time period, let me offer you a very brief chronology of Muslims in Iberia. 
Following an initial invasion in 711, Muslims established control over much of the Iberian Peninsula by the mid-8th century. Although the Abbasids defeated the Umayyad dynasty in the east in 750, a surviving Umayyad fled west and established an emirate in Iberia. In 929, this emirate became the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba, which lasted about a century. It's this caliphal period uh, that's been praised as the golden age of Al-Andalus when Jews, Christians, and Muslims shared in an era of intellectual and artistic fluorescence. Uh, after the caliphate's disintegration, two Moroccan dynasties attempted to reunite Muslim Iberia in the 12th century, uh, but were unsuccessful. Meanwhile, Iberia's Christian kingdoms steadily gained territory, conquering most of the peninsula by the mid-13th century. From roughly 1248 to 1492, Iberian Muslims fell into two major groups, those who lived under Christian rule and those who lived in or immigrated to Nasrid Granada, which survived for nearly two and a half centuries as the last Muslim kingdom in Iberia. The former became, became known as Mudejars and were allowed to continue practicing Islam subject to certain restrictions that varied over time and from place to place. With the fall of Granada, all Iberian Muslims became Mudejars until forced conversions and regional expulsions began in the early 16th century. By 1526, all Muslims remaining in the Iberian Peninsula had in theory been converted to Christianity. Most of these converts, who became known as Moriscos, continued to practice Islam in secret. Uh, when various efforts to secure their sincere conversion and assimilation were deemed unsuccessful, the Moriscos were expelled from Iberia between 1609 and 1614. Uh, the loss of the has been seen as a major turning point for the Islamic world when some of the first substantial Muslim populations came under permanent Christian rule. Uh, this situation gave rise to a number of critical questions for Muslim jurists, perhaps none more fundamental than the very permissibility of remaining under non-Muslim rule. The regretful Andalusi immigrants with whom I opened were not the first Muslims to complicate the theoretically straightforward obligation to perform hijra, to emigrate, nor was Al-Wancharisi the first or the only jurist to address these issues. Yet his two fatwas on the obligation to emigrate are the rulings that have garnered the most attention uh, and have been taken to represent the quote-unquote orthodox position of the Maliki school of law, uh, the dominant school in the Islamic West, that is, North Africa and Iberia. Today I plan to summarize Awantarisi's two well-known rulings, Esnel Matajer and the Marbella Fatwa. Then I'll introduce a body of fatwas authored by Awantarisi and three of his contemporaries in Fez, that I found preserved in a 17th century fatwa collection that remains in manuscript in Morocco. Based on this additional material, I argue that Al-Wancharisi's two better known fatwas are not primarily concerned with Iberia, but rather are best understood as contributions to a lively juristic discourse on the status of Muslims living in Christian-occupied territory in the Maghrib itself in the late 15th century. Near the end of my talk, I'll introduce one final fatwa that has often been regarded uh, as a minority voice protesting Al-Wancharisi's severity, and I'll use a comparison of these two texts 
to argue against the way orthodoxy has been construed in relation to fatwas in general. Al-Wanshirisi, <coughs> the chief mufti of Fez under the Watasids, is best known for compiling Al-Ma'yar al-Mu'rab, a vast collection of approximately 6,000 fatwas issued by hundreds of muftis in the Islamic West over nearly 500 years. This is what it looks like in the modern uh, printed version. The Ma'yar was meant to serve as a reference for legal professionals in the Maliki school. Al-Wanchrisi included Esna al-Matajr and the Marbeya Fatwa in this collection. The two appear to have been composed together in September 1491, just a few months prior to the January 1942 surrender of Granada. At the time Al-Wanchrisi was writing, most Iberian Muslims were considered mudejars, Muslims living under Christian rule who were still permitted to practice Islam. Both texts open with the text of the question posed to Al-Wanchrisi. The questioner in both cases is Ibn Qatiyah, uh, who identifies himself as a fellow Maghrabi jurist. In the first question, Ibn Qutiyah describes our group of conquered Andalusis who had left everything behind and exerted great effort in order to emigrate to North Africa only to find themselves penniless, unprotected, and longing for Castile. They mocked the idea of obligatory migration to North Africa and publicly expressed their preference for Castile and its inhabitants. Ibn Qutiyah solicits Al-Wanchirisi's opinion as to the punishment they deserve and requests confirmation that the obligation to emigrate is not contingent upon material comfort. In his response, Al-Wanchirisi cites Quranic verses, prophetic hadith reports, and the unanimous consensus of jurists in support of his prohibition on voluntary residence in infidel territory. Just as Muhammad had emigrated from Mecca to to Medina in order to escape persecution and to found the first Islamic community, so too must Iberian Muslims refuse the multiple humiliations of subjection to Christian rule and show their solidarity with Muslims by emigrating to Muslim territory. Fearing that these Andalusias could create serious communal discord or fitna, Ilwantarisi urges their severe punishment in this world and predicts hellfire for them in the next. In the Marbeya Fatwa, Ibn Qatiyah asks if a man uh, from the Siberian coastal town might remain there in order to help others deal uh, with the Christian authorities. Ibn Qatiyah notes that this man and most of those around him are perfectly capable of emigrating and have been granted permission to do so. As in Esnal Matajr, Iwantarisi prohibits the man's voluntary residence under Christian rule. Uh, to explain how I read these fatwas differently from previous scholars, I've reproduced on the handout uh, on the back my translation of just the question component of Esna al-Matajr. Most of the scholars interested in this text have been historians of Spain interested in the social and political realities of Muslim life under Christian rule. I've shaded and italicized those parts of the question that have been considered most important in the existing literature. And the shading is really light on your handout, but you can see the uh, italicized parts. Uh, so what's been considered important is that some Andalusis emigrated. They did so for the sake of God, 
meaning they are good Muslims. They found life in the Maghreb difficult, and they wanted to go back. This narrative has evoked sympathy for the tremendous difficulties facing al Mudekhars, while al Wantrisi's answers have been viewed as needlessly cruel and of grave consequence for Mudekhars. These immigrants are generally described as a pious and beleaguered group who approached Awantrisi themselves asking to return home to Castile. Uh, in the case of the unhappy Andalusi immigrants described in National Natajer, or wishing others, as in the Marbella case. Most of the literature has also assumed that Awantrisi delivered his severe condemnation directly to the Andalusis in question, and that these unhappy immigrants circulated the written answers among Iberian Muslims. These fatwas are then assumed to have encouraged emigration by those Muslims who were able to leave, namely the elites, and this left the poor defenseless, as well as branding all mudejars as sinners and traitors. A couple early authors even blamed Luantrisi himself for the downfall of Spanish Islam. And here I've, I've put up just a couple representative statements over time. Now if you look at the text and the handout, that is bolded and underlined, you'll see what I've found to be the most essential aspects of this question as an Islamic legal historian. In focusing on the plight of Mudejars, other scholars have neglected the circumstances of the questions posed to al -Wanjurisi. Yet in this genre of legal literature, the legal content of the question and the identity of the questioner, who is the immediate audience for the fatwa, set the parameters for the tone and content of the response. It's essential to understand that Al-Wantrisi wrote for a Maghrabi audience, that we have no evidence that these fatwas circulated in Iberia, and that even if they had, it would be anachronistic to attribute significant Mudejar emigration to these rulings. First, Al-Wantrisi was responding to two questions posed by Ibn Qatiyah, not by the Mudejars in question. In Asnal Matajr, Ibn Qatiyah describes a number of criminally prosecutable offenses committed by the emigrants after arriving in the Maghrib, and asks the Wancherisi's opinion as to the appropriate punishment for these crimes. This indicates that Ibn Qatiyah must have been the type of mufti who advised judges on points of law. I believe the unhappy emigrants landed in court in what's now Morocco, that a judge asked Ibn Qatiyah for his opinion on the legal consequences of their actions, and that Ibn Qatiyah then wrote to the leading jurist of his time for a supporting opinion. Second, these immigrants probably never saw this fatwa, nor have I found any compelling reason to believe that the text ever circulated in Iberia or was read by any mudejars at all. The only audience beyond Ibn Qatiyah that we may assume Awantrisi wrote for was the wider professional legal community that would read the Ma'yar once it was completed. Although Ibn Qatiyah may have sent a written answer to the man from Marbella, we do not know what that answer might have looked like, or whether it reached its destination, or what the man might then have done with it. So thus far, we have a Maghrabi jurist writing for a Maghrabi audience, and in the case of Asnal Matajr, writing about a crime taking place in the Maghrib. But if these fatwas were not meant to mobilize potential Iberian emigrants, why did Awantrisi compose such a compelling case for the obligation to emigrate? 
I argue that Alwantarisi's fatwas are best understood as contributions to a contemporary juristic discourse focused primarily on the status of Muslims under Christian rule within Morocco itself. 15th and 16th century Morocco witnessed the founding and rapid expansion of Portuguese and Spanish holdings, beginning with Portugal's occupation of the Mediterranean port of Sueta in 1415. Moroccan Muslims had been paying tribute to Portuguese rulers, serving in their armies, spying for them, and trading with them for the better part of a century when Alwantarisi wrote Esnel Matajer from Fez, where the Sultan had just extended a long-term peace treaty with Portugal. The Spanish uh, would capture Malia a few years later, 1497, and Portugal would continue to expand its holdings in Morocco until 1541. Given this historical context, it should not surprise us that the proper relationships between Moroccan Muslims and Christian conquerors should have been a pressing concern in Alwantarisi's time. As it turns out, a body of opinions related to Christian-occupied Morocco was indeed preserved in Abdelaziz al-Zayati's fatwa compilation al-Jawahir al-Mukhtara, which remains unpublished and little studied. Uh, and here I'm going to give you a glimpse of my research process. Uh, back when I was loose in the field, I spent a year and a half searching for opinions addressing Muslims under non-Muslim rule in all of the Maliki Fatwa collections I could find. Uh, while many of these collections are published, the search also entailed long hours in the manus manuscript libraries of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Spain. The state of cataloging varies considerably by library, but for many of them, finding manuscripts still means flipping through hundreds of handwritten cards, hoping for a title that catches your eye. Uh, once I identified El Zayati's collection as crucial, I obtained three copies of his chapter on Jihad, where these opinions are included, and produced a critical edition before translating and writing about these texts. And this is an image from one of the copies held in the Hessenia or Royal Library in Rabat. Fortunately, a Moroccan scholar is just now finishing an edition of the whole compilation. It's a two-volume uh, fatwa compilation, and it should be more widely available soon. Al-Zayati's compilation shows that Al-Wancharisi and at least three of his immediate peers in Fez were all writing fatwas on the status of Muslims living under some form of Portuguese authority in the years prior to Al-Wancharisi's composition of Esno Matajer. First, Al-Zayati includes three fatwas by an Ibn Bartal. Oops. Oh, okay. So here was the card for Al-Zayati, and here's an uh, image from one of the manuscript pages. Okay. So Al-Zayati includes three fatwas by Ibn Bartal, apparently all responses to the same impatient questioner who had resubmitted his questions despite Ibn Bartal's protest that he had responded immediately when they first arrived. This set of fatwas represents a fascinating glimpse into a rather messy process of legal advice hastily composed in response to an urgent but complicated and inconsistent set of questions. In all, Ibn Bartal weighs in on the legal statuses of five categories of Muslims who are living unambiguously under Christian rule and of several additional groups apparently living on the Christian Muslim frontier. 
at stake is the inviolability of these Muslims' lives and property. And his rulings range from, on the one hand, declaring forfeit the lives of Muslims who sell weapons to the enemy, spy, or fight for them, to, on the other hand, praising those on the frontier who have thus far managed to delay payment of any tribute to the Christians and who remain poised to form the front lines in a hoped-for jihad against the occupiers. Significantly, Ibn Bartal considers that a middle group of lay Muslims on the frontier who do pay tribute to the enemy but commit no additional offenses, such as trading with them, may be unaware of the implications of their actions. He demands that his questioner and his honorable, peer, uh, honorable peers, apparently muftis themselves, who were residing in this area, do all they can to inform these people of their sins and to guide them from error. The exchange demonstrates that the question of what exactly constituted living under Christian authority was not clear-cut in this period, even to many jurists, but that these issues were considered to be of immediate practical importance. Second, uh, the importance of drawing clear lines between Muslim and Christian territory is most apparent in a fatwa by Abdullah al-Wariagli. This jurist was asked about a group of Muslims who had remained in their own lands despite becoming subject to infidel laws and influences and despite the opportunity to move to Muslim-ruled territory nearby. In his response, Al-Wariagli rules not only that Muslims who voluntarily remain under non-Muslim rule may be killed, but also encourages and even requires that they be killed. He chastises his questioner for even referring to these people as our brothers and prays that God will guide the fighters' swords to the necks of both the Christians and the Muslims who live in their midst. The severity of Al-Wariagli's ruling suggests a key difference between Christians living under Muslim rule in Iberia and in the Maghreb. While jihad to regain territory in Spain was no longer an option for Andalusi Muslims, it was still viable and praiseworthy in Morocco. Muslims who remain intertwined with the enemy in Portuguese territory presented an ethical and logistical obstacle. Al-Wariagli's fatwa, in which he simply strips these Muslims of their inviolability rather than encouraging them to emigrate, was most likely meant to assist warriors in the prosecution of jihad by alleviating concerns regarding injury to fellow Muslims. Third, al-Ziyati includes one opinion by Isa ibn Ahmed al-Mawasi, who was at one point the chief mufti of Fez. Like his peers, al-Mawasi was asked about a group of Muslims who have fallen under infidel rule. The questioner asks if it is permissible for these Muslims to remain where they are, despite the ease with which they could move. As in the questions posed to Ibn Bartal, these subject Muslims are then divided into several groups based on their relationship to Christian authority those who only pay a tribute to their infidel rulers, those who additionally trade with the enemy, those who provide the enemy with information about the Muslims, and those who happily fish with the enemy, praising the times and asking God to prolong them. Al-Mawasi prohibits remaining under infidel rule or paying tribute to a non-Muslim ruler. For Al-Mawasi, like Ibn Barthal, Muslims who do remain under Christian rule may not give testimony or lead prayer, 
But as Muslims, their lives remain inviolable. As for spies and those who happily fish with the enemy, a Muasi implies that they are apostates whose lives and property are forfeit. They are, quote, closer to the infidels than to the believers because love for the infidel and praying for his strength and power over the Muslims are among the signs of unbelief. Finally, Al-Zayati includes one fatwa by Al-Wancharisi that Al-Wancharisi himself chose not to preserve in his own collection. In what I call the Berber fatwa, he is asked about a group of Berbers who failed to relocate when their territory fell under Christian rule, uh, despite their ability to do so. The question is nearly identical to the one opposed to Al-Mawasi, complete with a category of Muslims who fish with the enemy and pray for continued infidel rule. Al-Wantrisi largely agrees with Ibn Bartal and Al-Mawasi and presents some of the same evidence he would later use in Esnil Matajr to support the obligation to emigrate. His use of the same arguments here and in both Esnil Matajr and the Marbeya Fatwa indicate that Al-Wantrisi considered the two cases of Muslims living under Christian rule in the Maghrib and in Iberia to be equivalent violations of the Maliki school's prohibition on living under non-Muslim rule. That these opinions in al-Jawahir al-Mukhtara were not simply issued in the same time period as one another, but were products of a formal juristic discourse on a matter of shared concern is clear from the extent to which they overlap in content and in the specific phrasing of questions and answers. This shared content is particularly evident in the fatwas of al-Mawasi, Ibn Bartal, and al-Wanchirisi. These three jurists all respond to questions regarding the legal status of Muslims who fall into roughly five categories, ranging from those who voluntary, voluntarily continue to live under infidel authority to those who fight for the enemy against other Muslims. Taken together, these texts offer a record of indigenous resistance to the expansion of Iberian Empire that is quite rare for the 15th century. The link between this group of fatwas, preserved by al-Zayati and Esnil Matajr, is provided most convincingly by al-Wanchirisi himself. The first half of his Berber fatwa reads like a rough draft for Esnil Matajr. And the story of the unhappy Iberian emigrants in Esnil Matajr explicitly links this the question of Muslims living under Christian rule in both Iberia and the Maghreb. These emigrants' basic offenses, contentment with infidel rule, and the public expression of a desire for the continuance of that rule also appear in Al-Wanchirisi's Berber fatwa and in that of Al-Mawasi in connection with those who fish with the enemy. The foregrounding of these crimes in Esnil Matajr makes these unhappy Andalusi players, sorry, makes these unhappy Andalusis players on the Moroccan stage. And the exemplary punishment Al-Wanchirisi prescribes for them must be interpreted as a lesson for Moroccan Muslims, still in the process of negotiating a complex set of relationships with Christian authorities. My analysis of this material supports the conclusion that Al-Wanchirisi's two fatwas on emigration from Iberia, Esnil Matajr and the Marbella fatwa, must be viewed as part of this larger discourse on the status of conquered Muslims on both sides of the Mediterranean in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. And rather than viewing the Iberian Muslim predicament as exceptional, 
I suggest that Alwantarisi and his peers had every reason to believe that Christian Iberia's aspirations of permanent conquest extended to North Africa. These jurists must have been particularly alarmed to find a group of Iberian Muslims spreading the idea among Moroccans that Christian rule is not only not a threat to be combated, but is actually far preferable to Muslim rule. But if the legal discourse concerning Muslims under Christian rule was centered on the Maghrib by the late 15th century, why did Al-Wantrisi choose to preserve in the Ma'yar answers regarding Andalusi immigrants only? I suggest he did so for two reasons. First, he considered the fate of Iberia's Muslims to represent a conclusive precedent. When Al-Wantrisi composed these Andalusi fatwas, the fall of Muslim Iberia had been underway for over four centuries and was, was within months of completion. The fate of Iberia's Muslims would have provided a more concrete historical precedent than the still unfolding situation in Morocco for later generations who would read the Ma'iyar. Perhaps more importantly, the loss of Al-Andalus would also have served as a warning for Al-Wanchirisi's present Maghrabi audience of the consequences of complacency in the face of unchecked Christian advances. Esnel Matajir in the Marbella Fatwa thus may be read as a powerful commentary on the foreign occupation of the Maghrib in Al-Wanchirisi's time. Yet it is a veiled commentary, and this points to the second reason for Al-Wanchirisi's preservation of these ostensibly Iberian fatwas instead of those focused on the Maghrib. In his Berber fatwa, Ilwantarisi had called upon uh, the leaders of the Muslims, as well as the community, to prevent any interaction with Portuguese-occupied areas. By the time he wrote Esnel Matajir, Watasid Sultan Mohammed al-Sheikh had renewed a long-term peace treaty with Portugal. Ilwantarisi appears to have suppressed the more overt political critique of his Berber fatwa in favor of preserving Esnel Matajir, thus placing the blame for Muslim defeat safely in faraway Iberia. So the first main argument that I want to leave you with today is that in order to fully understand the importance of these texts and their larger historical context, we must leave behind an exclusive focus on Iberia's conquered Muslims as either unique or uniquely worthy of study. This argument against the exceptionalism of Iberia contributes to a recent historiographical trend that emphasizes the need to view pre-modern Iberia and North Africa as a unified region. My research, which shows that a text once thought to be of crucial importance for Iberian Muslims, was likely written by, for, and about Maghrabi Muslims, serves as a powerful example of the need to widen our focus beyond the narrow confines of national borders and academic disciplines. Placing Al-Wantarisi's rulings in their North African context also challenges the presumption that Islamic legal orthodoxy in the late 15th century was too rigid to accommodate, accommodate Iberian Muslims. Not only do I see these fatwas as primarily concerned with North Africa, but my analysis of Awantarisi's arguments shows that these rulings are quite creatively adapted to addressing both the Maghrabi and Iberian contexts. 
While I won't get into the details of Al-Mantarisi's reasoning, I will briefly introduce one final fatwa that's often been used to underscore an image of Al-Mantarisi as representative of all that ailed Islamic law in the post-formative age. For a long time, Western and Muslim scholars held that as, that as of the 10th century, Muslim jurists were stripped of their former interpretive freedom, that Islamic law from then on steadily ossified, and that, that unable to adapt to new historical realities, this outmoded legal system became increasingly irrelevant to the changing needs of society. Ilwan Charisi has been the poster mufti for this stagnation theory. Well, this next mufti, uh, Ibn Abi Juma al-Wahrani, has been used to support a more recent trend in Islamic legal historiography in which fatwas have been used, has been viewed uh, as the primarily, primary locus of adaptation and continued development in Islamic law. Al-Wahrani's 1504 fatwa is assumed to address the earliest Granada and Moriscos. Al-Wahrani praises their steadfast faith and offers practical advice as to how they might approximate adherence to Islamic obligations without being detected and despite being forced to perform such acts as praying in church or drinking wine. As long as their intentions are pure and their inward faith remains resolute, writes al-Wahrani, they will not sin in doing what they must to avoid persecution. Al-Wahrani has been seen to represent a voice of openness, compassion, and creativity in the face of Al-Wanchirisi's strictly unbending and authoritarian orthodoxy. I argue that this is a false comparison, as these fatwas not only tr treat distinct legal issues, but also differ in terms of audience, form, form and function of the response, and later importance of the texts. More importantly, I don't think we can describe any fatwa, an ad hoc opinion, uh, an ad hoc and non-binding answer to one question, as orthodox. Rather, we need a way to understand why some rulings are more successful than others in becoming authoritative precedents for later jurists. By comparing Al-Wanshirisi and Al-Wahrani, I'll suggest one way to understand the disparate legacies of these two texts. First, in terms of the legal issue treated, Awancharisi's two Andalusi fatwas are centrally concerned with the obligation to emigrate for those capable of doing so. Both he and his questioner explicitly describe the Muslims in question as capable of emigrating. The unhappy immigrants of Esnil Matajer are in fact so capable of emigration that they've already done so once and are clamoring to do so again, but in reverse. In contrast, al-Wahrani's fatwa is not concerned with emigration at all. Although al-Wahrani does not explicitly state that his addressees are incapable and thus exempt from emigration, he may have found little to be gained from stating the obvious. A group unable to perform ablutions or prayers or to refuse wine surely can be assumed to be incapable of the infinitely more difficult task of overseas emigration en masse. Second, these texts serve different functions for different audiences. I've argued that Al-Wanchirisi crafted Al-Wanchirisi uh, Matajer in the Marbella Fatwa not to encourage Mudejars to emigrate, but in order to serve at least two purposes for two audiences located primarily in the Maghrib. 
He offered legal advice to a fellow mufti concerning a court case, but he did so by crafting a lengthy and technical response meant to shape legal discourse, to be consulted, discussed, and studied by the legal professionals and students who would become the audience of the Ma'iyar. In contrast, al-Wahrani addressed directly a lay Morisco audience. His fatwa is more a letter of heartfelt encouragement and practical advice than it is a dispassionate discussion of legal rules. Al-Wahrani cites only one legal authority. Indeed, the hierarchical enumeration of proof texts and detailed technical discussions of Asnul Matajir would not only have been inappropriate for al-Wahrani's audience, but also would have been an unnecessary hindrance to smuggling the text into Granada. These differences in content, form, and audience all help to explain the different legacies of Al-Wantrisi's and Al-Wahrani's fatwas. In my study of later Maliki fatwas on the obligation to emigrate, I've found no references to Al-Wahrani. His text appears to have had no impact on legal, later legal thought on this issue. Rather, the importance of this text lies in the value attached to it by the lay Muslim audience to which it was addressed. Moriscos continued to copy al-Wahrani's fatwa, presumably at great risk, until as late as 1609. L.P. Harvey has thus called it the key theological document for the study of Spanish Islam in the Morisco period. Moriscos would not have judged this text primarily on the basis of al-Wahrani's professional reputation or the quality of his legal arguments, but rather on the basis of the encouragement, validation, and guidance the fatwa contained. Al-Wanchirisi's fatwas did go on to become the authoritative precedence, uh, precedent for later Maliki rulings on the obligation to emigrate. In studying rulings from the colonial period in particular, I have found that even those later jurists who disagreed with Al-Wanchirisi recognized his fatwas as the important precedence to be reinterpreted or refuted in the, con in the course of their arguments. This success is a result of several identifiable factors, perhaps most notably Al-Wantrizi's monumental achievement in compiling the Ma'iyar, which became a standard textbook and authoritative reference manual for Maliki legal professionals. Al-Wantrizi's choice to elaborate and preserve in this collection not his Berber fatwa, but his answers to Ibn Qatiyah's questions regarding the unhappy Andalusi immigrants and the man from Marbella also positioned his opinions well to serve as compelling and instructive precedents for later jurists, unlike the more nuanced, complex, and politically sensitive issues treated by the fatwas preserved in al-Jawahir al-Mukhtara, al-Wanchirisi's Andalusi fatwas provided comparatively clear-cut cases for which the obligation to emigrate could be asserted more forcefully and supported not only by carefully constructed arguments and a claim to scholarly consensus, but also by the dramatic loss of Al-Andalus. Thank you.